Uh, the reading this morning from God's inspired and inerrant word is from Psalm 138. It's a psalm of David. I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. I will bow down or bow toward your holy temple and will praise your name for your unfailing love and your faithfulness. For you have so exalted your solemn decree that it surpasses your fame. When I called, you answered me. You greatly emboldened me. May all the kings of the earth praise you, Lord, when they hear what you have decreed. May they sing of the ways of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord is great. Though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the lowly. Though lofty, he sees them from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With your right hand, you save me. The Lord will vindicate me. Your love, Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. May God bless this reading to us from his word. Thank you, Neil. <clears throat> now, today is quite an important day, not only for Anna and Jarvis, but for all of us, because today we start another journey around the sun. It's a particularly important day for Jarvis and Anna, though, because they're starting life as parent, Christian parents, starting life as with a child that is a part of the church. But it's also important for us here as friends, family and part of Hudson's Church because we're welcoming him into this community and we've promised to both love and support him as he grows up. But the heart of the promise that we've made is that we will all point Hudson to Jesus, to show Hudson both in what we say and what we do, what it means to be saved by grace through faith. We've said that we will exemplify the life of a Christian to the best of our ability. But we've also said that we will support Anna and Jarvis in doing that, as they do it in the most important and the most personal of ways as parents. But the the role of a parent and the role of Christians within a church is not some make-it-up-as-you-go idea. No, both our job as parents, as family and as friends is to point him to the lessons, to point little Hudson to the things that we ourselves have learnt from God's Word which is exactly what I'm hoping that we're going to do today from the psalm that Neil just read for us, from Psalm 138. Because when it comes to learning life lessons, to understanding life's point and purpose, I don't think there is a better place to look than to God's Word. And I think there are few better people to learn from than from King David, the most respected king to ever rule Israel. In many ways, David was both like us and unlike us. He was like us in his fallibility. His failures are more well-known than any of ours, I'm sure. But he's also unlike us in lots of ways as well, because he was uniquely chosen by God to rule and lead a nation, his chosen people, Israel. The burden that David bore and the choices that he made were in part for making him the man after God's own heart that he became. But another thing that makes David unlike us was when he existed. Because David looked forward to a time when God would reveal himself fully to this world. We don't look forward to that day though. We look back to it. 
we look back to Jesus because Jesus is the one that revealed God in his fullness to us. We too, though, look forward to the day that Jesus will be seen and known by all. And despite the ways David is unlike us, his words, which have become God's own word in our Bibles, teach us some very valuable lessons. Today's sermon I've called Lessons from a King. It's lessons that we can all learn from, but it's lessons that I pray little Hudson grows up hearing and seeing in all of our lives. But before we do that, let's come to God in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which it speaks into our lives. May we recognize that the things that we read today are not merely ancient truths, they're eternal truths. They're things that, are at, that were as true back then as they are today. And so may we not only hear these words, may we understand them through your spirit and may we seek to live them in our lives. God, may your spirit continue to lead and guide us and shape us into the people you made us to be. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, in many ways, life and the beginning of a new year are like a book filled with empty pages. Everything that will happen is in front of us. The possibilities are endless and the opportunities are numberless. The question we all have to ask ourselves is what are those pages going to be filled with? What's this year ahead going to look like for us? What's it going to mean for us? But importantly today, Hudson sits here this morning as a completely blank slate, an empty book. He will have a lifetime of opportunities to fill those pages. What choices will Hudson make? What circumstances will he find himself in? Now, as a young parent, as you've all seen and heard this morning, it's amazing to watch an infant learn. Layla learned to walk four days ago and now she's running around causing chaos, yelling at church. But as parents, we set a really low bar for the things that we celebrate. I don't congratulate adults for holding their head up or for swallowing a mouthful of food. I've never clapped Natalie when she's gone to the toilet all by herself. And she never encourages me when I put the seat down. But we celebrate these kinds of things in little ones because they're learning life from scratch. They literally know nothing, and at this point, Hudson can do next to nothing. But as they grow, they learn. And for Jarvis and Anna, the things that Hudson is currently learning are basically how to live, how to survive, the simple necessities of life. But a time will quickly come, and maybe has already begun, where Hudson will actually learn what it means to be Hudson. He will be start, he'll start learning far more complex things than just survival. Because maybe even already now, Hudson has begun to learn what his life is all about. And Anna and Jarvis will play a really important role in him understanding that. But so will all of us. Because all of us have promised this morning that we will play a part in leading him, in guiding him, in teaching him. So what is it that he needs to learn? What is it that we need to learn? What is it that we need to learn and be taught? And for all of us here this morning, what are the lessons that we should be taking here into 2023? Because this passage wasn't written for Hudson, this passage was written for all of us. Well, I want to I see, I wanna, hopefully I want us to see three foundational lessons that we can learn from David. Three things that David himself saw and knew. 
And I think all three of these things are things that we ourselves need to learn. And the first, I think, is the importance of worship. This, there is little doubt, I think, that David's desire here is to worship God. You look at the book of Psalms and a huge chunk of them are written by David and they all bear an element of worship. And that's what the heart of our psalm today is all about. Worship. And the reality is, every single one of us here in this room today, no matter who we are or what we believe, worship something. To quote the famous agnostic author David Foster Wallace, there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. The problem that Wallace himself faced was that he didn't know what he should worship. And that was a big part of what tormented him his entire life until he took his own life. Because he didn't know what to worship. And that's something that challenges all of us. Because worship is something so much more than just singing. It's so much more than just talking. Worship is something that you commit your life to. It's what you focus your life on. It's what you build your identity around. Worship in its truest form is something deeper than just surface level commitment. No, it's a heart driven commitment to something both internally and externally. And we all worship. David in this psalm makes his worship clear. In verse 1, I will praise you Lord with all my heart. Before the gods I will sing your praise. David's praise, his commitment, his worship was oriented towards his Lord. Or literally here, Yahweh, the self-given name of the God of Israel. But he also makes clear here that there are plenty of other options out there. His praise of the Lord was not going up in a vacuum. No, it was before other gods. Because there always has and always will be other gods in this world. Other beings, other people and other things that we can worship. In the ancient world and our world today, there is no shortage of things for us to worship. There always will be gods. The only choice we get is who? Now, not long ago, I got sucked into a TV show based on a novel called American Gods, which basically dramatically and fictionally depicts the struggle between the old gods and the new. On one side, you've got the gods of the ancient world, Odin, Ibis, gods of the harvest, all those ancient gods we hear about from the past. The gods that our modern world kind of looks down on and laughs at as stupid. But then on the other side, they had this, these modern gods, the personified gods of our new world, technology, media, globalization, the forces and powers that control our world today. And the show is ultimately about these two sets of gods struggling against each other, fighting against each other. And their goal is the hearts of humanity. They are fighting for the worship of humankind. Now, I always have to give a warning when I give a movie or TV reference. I wouldn't recommend watching this. I can't recommend watching this from the front. But it dramatically and fictionally portrays how our world operates. Because the worship of the human heart is something that is always being fought over. Attention in our world is something that our world fights for. 
Your phone will suck you in one direction. Your family will suck you in another. Your job will suck you in another direction. There is always things for you to be distracted by, always things for you to give your worship to, always things that demand your attention. And this is something that Hudson's going to have to realize for himself. Because Hudson will worship something. The only question is, what is it that he will worship? The same is true for all of us. Who or what do we really worship? What does your life say about where your heart truly lies? David says in this psalm that his heart is the Lord's. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is where he focuses his worship. The God of the Exodus. But also the God that said to Jesus at his own baptism, This is my son whom I love, with him him I am well pleased. But the who of David's worship wasn't the only thing that mattered. It was also the how and the why. Because the psalm goes on, I will bow down towards your holy temple and will praise your name. For your unfailing love and your faithfulness. For you have so exalted your solemn decree that it surpasses your fame. David's worship here is not just about how he feels. It's not about what he wants to do. No, his worship, his praise is built completely around God. That's why it says he's bowing down towards the temple. But if you know anything about ancient Israel, you'll have have a question about what David says there. There's something strange in what he's doing. Because was there actually a temple in David's day? No. David's son Solomon was the one who built the temple in Jerusalem after David's death. But what David is saying here is that he is pointing his worship to where God's presence dwells, which in his day was actually the temple on wheels, the tabernacle. And it's important for us to note all of this too, because our worship is not meant to be built around us. The worship that the Bible outlines and that God says he desires is not about us. It's not built on what we want. It's not built on what we think we need. It's all focused on God. He is the one who sets the agenda. He sets the playing field, not us. Which is an important thing for us to realize because how we worship is as important as what we worship. It's kind of more clear-cut in the ancient world and ancient Israel had a very intricate set of ceremonies and sacrificial laws that they followed. It was a religious life built around a temple and hence why David's worship is directed there. What does this mean for us? We don't have the festivals and the ceremonies and the practices that the ancient Israelites had. So what are we called to do? Well, in light of everything we've done this morning in baptism, it's clear that Jesus changes the landscape for us. His life, his death, his resurrection fulfilled many aspects of Israel's worship of their God. But it didn't remove the necessity of it. What it did was change it. In fact, the worship of a Christian is a whole-of-life thing. Think about what Paul says in Romans 12 verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. David picks up on all the language of the temple here, sacrifice, holiness. But it's not ancient that he's talking about. He's talking about our whole lives, our very being today, everything that we do 
is called to be an act of worship, a holy sacrifice. And we're told why. In view of God's mercy, in response to what God has done for us in Jesus. You can wade your way through those first 12 chapters of Romans, understanding it all, but if you don't apply Romans 12 verse 1, you've missed the boat. Because it's all about living it out. And our response to God's action and his mercy is also what drew David's praise in our psalm. Verse 3, when I called, you answered me. You greatly emboldened me. He says, when my heart cried out, when I needed you the most, you answered me. And it is you that emboldened me. Because as we'll see in a second, God does respond to all who cry out to him in weakness. But this first and most important thing, I guess, that we should take from this psalm is the centrality of worship. Because we all do it. Hudson will worship. The only choice he has is who and how. But the Bible answers the why. Why the God of the Bible is the one to worship. Because it shows us what he has done for us in Jesus. But I don't think that's the only lesson that Hudson needs to learn and I don't think it's the only thing for us to take from this either. Because the second, I think, is the call for us to witness. David has just spoken about his commitment to praise God, to worship him with all his heart. But then he expands it to this, stretching it out to the wider powers of this earth. He says in verse 4, May all the kings of the earth praise you, Lord, when they hear what you have decreed. May they sing of the ways of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord is great. David himself was a king. And it was his desire that all the kings of the earth might praise the Lord. So is this just a a desire for his pals, his equals, to do what he did? No. It's something much more. He wanted the entire world to know God for who he was. He didn't just want everyone to be on Team David. In the ancient world and in lots of the world today, as a leader went, so the people went. But his desire was not to build an empire. His desire wasn't to build his own fame. No, his desire was to see his God worshipped. And that's a sticky thing in our modern Western world. It doesn't really sit too well in our modern secularism to say that we want all this world to worship our God. That kind of goes against the the aggressive so-called pluralism that our world professes. But anyone who reads the Bible and acknowledges what Jesus says about himself has to recognize that that's what the Bible says. We don't get to ignore what Jesus said in John 16.6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he doubles down on that in verse 7, saying that he is the revelation of the Father, the very God that David is praising in this psalm. He says in verse 7, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Now there is lots of things that offend our world today. But this exclusive claim of Jesus, I think, is possibly the most offensive thing to our world. Because it is saying that it's Jesus or nothing. But that's the truth that the Bible makes clear. Because lots of people want to acknowledge Jesus as a good teacher. 
but don't at the same time really want to listen to what he says about himself. And yet I think one of the biggest problems is about this is not actually out there in the world. I think it's actually in the church, in the whole church in the West. We've lost the point of why this is important to us, why we share our faith. What is the point of witnessing? It's not to grow our numbers, it's to reveal the glory of the Lord so that this world might see what God has done and hear what it is that he has said. That's what David wanted these kings to do. He wanted them to glorify God. He didn't want them to join his team so that Israel could be a greater nation. His desire wasn't to grow in power and prestige. No, his desire was to see the public glory of God grow. The main reason that we as Christians witness is because we want to see other people know the glory of God and worship him because of it. What Christians should desire most is to see God glorified by all. That's what David wanted here. And that's what and he did that, not by wielding power or a sword, but by crying out to God for it. I think it's been pretty painful for Christians in the West to watch how much infighting and political manoeuvring there is in the church today, fighting and floundering against each other over all kinds of silly things rather than seeking to see God glorified. In many ways, people desire power in the church, people desire power more than they desire God's glory. I read a a quote from Charles Spurgeon recently who nails it and said hundreds of years ago, Had half the time spent in councils and controversy been given to praising the Lord, the church would have been far sounder and stronger than she is today. I think that was true when Spurgeon said it, and I think it is still true for us today. Because God's glory is what David desired. He didn't want more power for himself, and that's what this section of the psalm is all about. It is this deep, heart-set desire to see the world know God to worship him for what he has said, for what he has done. And that's where we come in. That's where the church comes in. Because this is our job. It's our job to articulate and express God's glory in our own lives. Because that's the natural flow of worship. That which you truly worship in your heart, you will want to see shared with others. You will want to see others drawn into I mean, I'm a passionate evangelist for my sporting teams, for TV shows that I watch, for restaurants that I love, but is it always my heart's desire to see the world around me glorify God? Not always. And that's the challenge here. Can we have the heart that David has to see the world glorify him, to glorify God? Because that's our simple mission. And that's a challenge Hudson himself will face. Not only will he have to grapple with how he worships and who he worships, but he'll also have to acknowledge that the Christian faith is not just his. It's not just for him. It's something that needs to be shared. It's something that needs to be seen. It's something that needs to grow. Witnessing, sharing God's glory with others is what David wanted. And so, what we should want as Christians is not forced conversions, is not just to count numbers of growth. It's not relationships of convenience. What we should want to see is hearts won by seeing God's glory and loving who he is. 
And that's a heavy burden for us to bear. That's not something that we do easily. Our natural desire is often to, to run from that kind of responsibility. And I think the biggest reason for that is because we're not willing to admit our own weakness. Now, of all the kings of Israel that we come across, I think David is the last one that we might call weak. Sure, he had his moments of weakness, but the moments of strength far outweigh his moments of weakness. And yet, in the closing words of this psalm, we see how David saw himself. In verse 6, the Lord, though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the lowly. Though lofty, he sees them from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With your right hand, you save me. He begins by saying God is acknowledging that though God is exalted, or more literally lifted up, though God sits above everyone and everything, he cares for the people at the bottom. He cares for those that are down low. Though he is far above, he sees them. He knows them and he loves them, despite an infinite gap that exists between them. And David starts really generally here. He talks about God and what he values. It's not pride and arrogance. It's not people who lift themselves up or think of themselves as important. It's people who see themselves down low which is again even something that Jesus personified in his own life and ministry. But then David switches from this general description and he brings it into his own circumstances. He found himself in trouble, in that lowly place that he mentioned. And what did he do? Well, remember back to verse 3. He called out to God and God answered. God's answer though wasn't just to preserve him as it says here, It was also to embolden him, as he said earlier. The image that this psalm kind of draws is God holding off David's enemies with one hand and saving him, holding him close with the other. But this is also an image of struggle in the present. This isn't something David is just looking back on or something that he's looking forward to. No, this is the cry of his heart in that moment. It's an admission that his life is not easy. And the only hope he has is that he trusts God. Or to use this psalm's image, that trust that God has this all in his hands. Which I'm sure all of us have faced at one point in our life, or maybe you're even feeling this today. Maybe you feel the need, or maybe you feel that lost sense of desperation. I'm sure all of us know moments in our life when we feel that. But what David points to us here is not a a self-help book. It's not some pop psychology. It's not a quick fix. David's solution is faith. It's trust. And it's confidence in the God that he knows, in the God that he praises, and in the God that he worships. And that really is at the heart of what we've done here this morning with little Hudson. Because the message to Hudson today is that he is a sinner. Even as a child, he is broken. He is fallen and left to his own devices. His future is apart from God. But in that simple water, we recognize what God has accomplished for us in Jesus. That in the depths of our despair, in the darkness and weakness of our own failures and sins, God has acted. Not because we were important, not because we lifted ourselves up, but the opposite. Because we were down low. 
But baptism isn't a rubber stamp. It's not a ticket guaranteeing you a spot in heaven. It's a sign of what God has done and a seal assuring us of its truth. But what Hudson needs to recognise and what we all need to recognise is the truth of this baptism for ourselves. Hudson will have to acknowledge his own brokenness, his own failures. And in doing that, he can be assured both of God's forgiveness, but also of his love, care and protection. Hopefully, Hudson will be able to say one day himself, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With your right hand, you save me. And the words that this psalm concludes with will one day, God willing, be the words that Hudson himself can publicly profess with his life. Verse 8, the Lord will vindicate me. Your love, Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the work of your hands. We know that God didn't abandon the work of his hands. We know that because he sent Jesus. We know that he didn't turn his back on this world because he stayed and he entered it. He walked through the midst of our trouble and he bore it upon himself because his love, his kindness towards the lowly endures forever. Now may we see that as we embrace a new year. May we acknowledge it today and may we pray that little Hudson will acknowledge it for himself in due course too. We all have to understand what it is that who, and who it is that we worship. We all have to recognize the importance of our witness. But we will only be able to do it when we all admit our own weakness, just as David himself did. Then by grace, through faith, the promises of baptism are made real. That's our desire for little Hudson's life. But it's also my desire for all of our lives, not only today, but as we start a new year. And the only way that we can do that with any kind of assurance is by handing it over to God. So let's do that together now. God, we thank you for the lessons that we can learn from a man like King David. We thank you for his words that were inspired to become your word. God, may we see and recognise the importance of, the, of who and what and why we worship. May we recognise that we all worship. May we be clear in our own minds and in our own hearts where our priorities lie. May we see and know the things that matter most. But may we also recognise the importance of our witness. May we see this world glorify your name. May we see more and more people in this lost and broken world find a sense of purpose, a sense of hope, and a sense of meaning in you. God, may we be your hands and feet. May we reflect Jesus out into this world. But may we do so by acknowledging our own brokenness and weakness first. May we all recognize our deep, deep need for you. And may you lead us and guide us and shape us into the people that you made us to be, so that we may glorify you, not only today, but into eternity. We pray this this morning for little Hudson, but for all of us here as well. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.